Chapter Two, Part C, of Aces Up by Covington Clark. A Pass to Paris. To all Allied soldiers on leave of absence from the front, Paris represented what McGee had voiced to Larkin, a place where the war was over for the time limits of their passes. Forgotten, for a few brief hours, were all the memories of military tedium, the roar of guns, the mud of trenches, the flaming airplane plunging earthward out of control. All these things were banished by the stimulating thought that here was the world-famous city with all its amusements, its arts, its countless beauties, open to them for a few magic hours. The fact that Paris was only a ghost of her former self made no impression on war-weary troopers. What mattered it to them that the priceless art treasures of the Louvre had been removed to the safety of the southern interior? Was it their concern that the once mighty and fearless Napoleon now lay blanketed by tons of sandbags placed over his crypt to protect revered bones from enemy air raids, or a chance hit by the long-range gun now shelling the city? What mattered it that famous cafés and chefs were now reduced to the simplest of menus? What difference did it make if the streets were darkened at night? Who that had never seen Paris in peacetime could sense that she was a stricken city hiding her sorrow and travail behind a mask of dogged, grim determination? Paris was Paris, to the medley of soldiers gathered there from the four points of the compass, and it was the more to her credit that she could still offer amusement to uniformed men and boys whose war-weary minds found here relief from the drive of duty. Everywhere the streets were swarming with men in uniform, French, English, Australian, Canadian, New Zealanders, colored French colonials, a few Russians who, following the sudden collapse of their government, were now soldiers lacking a flag, Scotch Highlanders in their gaudy kilts, Japanese officers in spick uniforms not yet baptized in the mud of the trenches, a varied, colorful parade of young men bent on one great common objective. At night, the common magnet was the theater, and the Folies Berger, featuring a humorous extravaganza, zigzag, in which was starred a famous English comedian, drew its full quota of fun-seeking youths. It was this show that McGee and Larkin had come to see, and at the end of the first act they were ready to add their praises to the chorus of approval. During the intermission they strolled out into the flag-bedecked foyer to mingle with a crowd that was ninety percent military, and which was in a highly appreciative frame of mind. One particularly pleasing note had been added rather unexpectedly, when one of the feminine stars in singing Scotland Forever had been interrupted by a group of Highlanders who boosted onto the stage a red-headed, bandy-legged, kilted Scotchman who had the voice of a nightingale. And when, somewhat abashed, he took up the refrain, he was joined by a thunderous chorus from the audience that made the listeners certain that Scotland would never die so long as such fervor remained in the hearts of her sons. The English soldiers, not to be outdone, had followed with God Save the King, and then, down the aisle, with a flag torn from the walls of the foyer, stalked an American sergeant. Holding aloft old glory, and leading his countrymen in the singing of the star-spangled banner. Trust a group of soldiers to take charge of a show, and run it to suit themselves. But they were pleased, beyond question, as was evidenced by the buzzing conversations during the intermission. Great show, eh? I'll tell the world. 
"'Hey, Joe, you old son of a gun, how'd you get down here? Thought you were wiped out at Weepers.' "'Huh, not me. They haven't made the shell that can get me. Look who's over there with a nice cushy wound to keep him out of trouble. Old Dogface himself. Hey, Dogface, come here.' Such were the greetings of soldiers who hid their real feelings behind a mask of flippancy. McGee drew Larkin into an eddy of the milling throng, where they could the better watch what Red termed the review of the nations. A strapping big Anzac, with a cockily rosetted rough-rider hat, strolled arm-in-arm arm with a French blue devil from the Alpine chasseurs. A kilted Highlander, three years absent from his homeland, and bearing four wound stripes on his sleeve was trying vainly to teach the words of Scotland forever to a Russian officer whose precise English did not encompass the confusing Scotch burr. Mixed tongues, mixed customs, variety of ideals, infantrymen, cavalrymen, artillerymen, war pilots, men with grey at the temples and beardless youths, here and there a man on crutches, here and there an empty sleeve, and many breasts upon which hung medals awarded for intrepid courage. Here grizzled old Frenchmen with backs bowed by three years of warfare, and there fresh, clean young Americans recently landed and a little amazed that they should be looked upon as the hope of the staggering allies. Color, color, color. Confused tongues. The buzz and babble of a thousand half-heard conversations. The fragments of marching songs. Here was a cross-section of the Allied armies, all of them with but one purpose. How could they fail? The scene had a telling effect upon McGee and Larkin. Wordless, for a few minutes, they stood watching the throng. It was McGee who spoke first. Did you ever see anything like it, Buzz? Just look at the different uniforms. There, look over there. A bunch of American blue jackets. Wonder how they got here. <laughs> Wonder how all of us got here. That's what I've been thinking about. This is just a moment snatched from the lives of all these fellows. What went before? What homes did they come from, and who is waiting for them? And what comes to them tomorrow? Gee! He shook his head slowly. It doesn't do to think about it. You want to find out about them, and you get to wishing they could all go on back home tomorrow. Say, who started this talk, anyhow? Come on, let's go back in. Wait a minute. McGee seized his arm and turned him around. There's plenty of time before the curtain. Look, Buzz, see that black fellow over there in French colonial O.D.? Came from Algiers, I guess, or Senegal, maybe. What brought him here? And what sort of stories will he tell, when he gets back home? Will he tell about what he did? Or will he talk about what he saw and what others did? I don't know. Why? Well, this has set me to thinking. We're all here on exactly the same business. The uniform doesn't count so much, nor does the branch of the service. It's just a question of getting the job done. A sort of heave-ho altogether now. Get me? Yes, I guess so. What are you driving at? This. See that American sergeant over there? The one who carried the flag down the aisle and jumped up on the stage? Yes, big fellow, isn't he? You said it. The biggest duck in this puddle, in more ways than one. And I want to get into the uniform he is wearing. Understand, Buzz? Oh, I'm proud enough of the one I'm wearing. But when he started the National Anthem, 
and they all came in on that chorus, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? Well, I felt cold shivers running up and down my backbone. None of the other songs did that to me. Do you get me, Buzz? Sure. I felt it, too. He put both his hands on Red's shoulders, holding him off at arm's length. You want back under the old stars and stripes, don't you, you little shrimp? Yes. And yet? I know how you feel. I'm with you, fellow, when you get ready to make the change. McGee's eyes lighted with surprise and joy. Really, Buzz? Surest thing you know. And you don't think we'd feel like... like... We'd feel like two Americans going home. Shake, little feller. There, I feel better already. Come on, let's go in. That's the curtain bell. End of chapter 2, part C.